spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. You have been warned. Team Eloy! Team Morlock! Who will win? It's a battle royale to the finish in a steel cage with a fried egg on top. Because this week we're going to go back, uh, actually forward in time. Welcome, dear time-traveling listeners, to another in a long line of episodes of Max Mike Movies. We are smack dab, whatever the hell that means, in the middle of a series of, well, looking back at films that tickled our tiny movie-watching hearts that we call When We Was Kids. This week, it's Mike's turn. Finally! And I mean, my... Uh, why do I do these things? Don't know. I don't either. I picked one of my very favorite movies, 1960s version of H.G. Wells' 1895 classic, The Time Machine. As is often the case, I am one of your hosts, the moistly musical Mike Luce, and the other voice in our little duo is the dulcetly delectable Max Levine. Cuckoo kachoob. Each week, we poke at a movie until it cries and is sent off to bed with no supper because you can't have your pudding if you don't eat your meat. And it knows what it did. Or something like that. Where was I? Um, what's water for? How is breathing a viable source of renewable energy? The lights are flashing faster. Do I smell toast? <laughs> right. But first, business. Business. Hey. I'm going to start streamlining business. You know how to find us. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here. But don't forget our website, which is MaxMikeMovies.com, where you can find all our back episodes, all the other 84 episodes you have yet to listen to, plus two specials. Including the forbidden ones <gasps> we are not allowed to broadcast. Uh, we're, uh, <clears throat> we, we don't have that up. We're, it's, oh, you right. know, They're forbidden. forbidden. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, right. also. You'll, you'll you have to get those on uh, BitTorrent. <laughs> Wow. I feel, I don't know if I'd feel actually happy or sad that we showed up there. It's like, dude, it's free. Why are yeah. you going here? I like Because pi pirating is fun. Arr. Um, if you'd like to email us with comments, suggestions, um, rude gestures, whatever you want, we have an email address, which is us at maxmikemovies.com. Hey, social media, we got you covered because we're on that Facebook thing and that Twitter thing. Both cases, it's max mike movies so remember won't you okay thank you <laughs> so this week the time machine i have both trivia and plot the show tell us the trivia will i so you. trivia trivia budget this was actually a little hard to find i had to, I had to go to a couple of sources oh. the budget was about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. that's yeah that's pretty impressive for 1960 Eh, for a special effects laden film, eh. uh, the final take worldwide was around two and a half million, so it was actually okay. fairly successful. Yeah, and this is an Academy Award winning film. Oh, what was it for visual effects? It was okay. Which, I can see that for the time, sure. For the time, for the time, that's underlined with an exclamation point. Yvette Mimieu, who plays Weena, only turned eighteen after filming started. <laughs> Ooh, awkward. <laughs> yeah, because actually she shouldn't have been filming the full schedule. If you're not a certain age in Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're only supposed to work so many hours a day, and she's like, I'll cheat, tee or whatever. <laughs> there is a very brief shot supposedly taking place in 1966, which would be the future for both when the movie came out and the future in the movie, where the movie predicts the coming of the flat screen TV. Of course, you and I would actually have to wait a few more decades for this to come about <clears throat> because we were savages savages <laughs> all, all those tubes <laughs> those woolly tubes <laughs> that's right made um, of mastodon hide was it stone knives and bear skins thank you mr spock uh yeah. our first tv i remember actually did have tubes and i recall very plainly going to radio shack to test them so yeah yep yep ours had tubes also and to be fair about this, uh, I did not know this. I actually had to go back into the film and find the shot. And sure enough, there is this thing saying the newest in tubeless TVs. And it's about the size of a piece of cardboard. But oh. it's actually pretty forward thinking. Anyway, though his last name is never given, George, the main character of the film, is pretty obviously meant to be H.G. Wells himself, the author of the novel. In the novel, the character is only known as the time traveler. His name's never given. Yet when they do... Because I, I, I've read the book. They too. just say blank. They actually, in effect, put a blank spot for his name. 
This film takes place in the following years. 1899, 1900, 1917, 1940, 1966, and 802,701. <laughs> That's from the book. Yep, yep. George arrives in the far future, the 802,000 far future, on October 12th, the same day Columbus supposedly discovered, notice that's in quote, the New World. Because, of course, the people who are already there did not need to be discovered. <laughs> shut yeah, up, I'm discovering you. <laughs> but, but we, we, we know we're here. No, shut up, you're, you're Indian, by the way. Yeah. I'm pretty maybe, sure we're not. Maybe that was the day Columbus uh, introduced small... Oh, no, never mind, we won't go there. <clears throat> but But he did. Figuring out the three books, which we'll get to, uh, which they mention at the end of the film, is nearly impossible as the entire bookcase was rearranged between the beginning and ending of the movie. Oh, man. Yeah, so no cheating. Wit Bissell... Wit Bissell! Wit Bissell! <laughs> ...would reprise his role far later on, but would also move from this to TV's Time Tunnel, a TV show directly oh. in influenced by this movie. Irwin Allen! Also... <laughs> Irwin Allen, Wit Bissell! Cats! <laughs> he would also show up in a 1978 made-for-TV movie adaptation by Sun Classics Look Them Up, a very loose application of the term adaptation. All of H.G. Wells' children were still alive when this movie was released, and his grandson would later direct the adaptation in 2002 starring Guy Pearce. Oh no. Yeah. Was that Professor Robinson Guy Pearce? Uh, it, Professor Robinson? From uh, Lost in Space? He wasn't Guy, he, no, 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 Guy Pierce. Oh, I think that's Guy Williams, never mind, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Guy Pierce was in, uh, um, um, the, the, the Australian gay film, what the hell was that thing? Uh, <laughs> Priscilla, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, oh, wow. among huh. other things. He was also okay. in Memento, uh, he was oh, in... Oh, that Guy Pierce. oh, that's right, that's right, That's that was the, the modern, the 2000s one with uh, Aries Spears, and I think Jeremy Irons as the lead Morlock. Oh, there you go. Uh, yeah. As you as you can see, it's a well remembered and loved adaptation. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I rewatched the the preview for that, and it's like it's like I, I kind of remember liking this, and I watched preview. Oh no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and again, adaptation in this case should be in quotes. Alan Young, who plays David, would cameo in the 2002 Guy Pierce film. And there's actually a little bit more trivia, but I'm going to get to that when we talk about the film because now, a word from our sponsor. You have a sponsor? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. But if you want to sponsor us, you can insert yourself right here. Yep. Ooh, insert. Ooh, Andy, insert. <laughs> right. So the plot. An inventor creates a machine he claims will allow him to traverse the fourth dimension, time. On New Year's Eve, 1899, he presents his theory to his group, group of very skeptical friends. Even though they see a scale model of his fully realized contraption disappear, none believe him and they all wander off to live happily in the end of Victorian times. George invites them all back a week hence, but heads into his lab to take the time machine out on its maiden voyage. He stops in 1917 and sees evidence of a great war. Leaving that, he stops in 1940 and realizes that what he thought was the same war is actually a different one. Or is it? A final 20th century stop in 1966 seems to show him that the nuclear annihilation is going to be a punctuation at the end of humanity's sentence. Fleeing the attack, he heads again forward into time, not stopping until he reaches 802,701. There he finds that humanity survives peacefully, having finally achieved plenty and leisure. Or have they? Dun, dun, dun. The people he meets, the Eloi, are nearly mindless, have no curiosity or drive. All quests for knowledge have stopped, and the only relics from the past are dust-covered and broken. But all is not as it seems. Humanity has split, and there is a darker side. The Morlocks. Boose. <laughs> this other half lives in fear of light below ground, but they have machines and some knowledge. They also herd and eat the Eloi. <laughs> <laughs> Finding this unconscionable, George tries to ignite the fire back in the Eloi, goading them into helping him destroy the Morlocks. Barely getting back to his time machine before it too is destroyed, George flees back to his past to relate this tale. None of his friends believe him. Realizing that his work in 1900 is done, he grabs three books and heads back to the future. Back to the future! <laughs> what could go wrong? The end. The end.
Lowdown. So, uh, believe it or not, um, since Max and I both read this book, this is actually a pretty faithful adaptation, all things being said. It kind of is. They oversimplify some stuff. They make the Eloy a lot more... I mean, they, per- the Eloy <laughs> change in the movie. They don't change in the book. Right. And, well, and also, there's... I mean, there's something a little creepy in the book because they, he makes the Eloy sound like they all look kind of like children. Yeah, but there's also no love interest. It's more True. of a paternal thing. And True. also, uh, he... Uh, spoiler... Uh, ends up kind of setting fire to some of them. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he kind of murders all the Morlocks. Well, but the, also in the movie. like it's no, no. Well, in the Morlocks in the movie, but he sets fire in the in the book. Uh, he, there, he's fleeing with Weena to get away from the Morlocks to get back to his time machine, and he starts a fire which goes out of control. And oh, right, and they don't know that it's dangerous, and they get burned up, or a bunch of right. Them do. And it's 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 suggested, although not plainly stated, I believe that Weena is probably a victim of that fire. And what they do leave out of the of the movie, which I think is partially for monetary reasons, is that he does not go back in time. From there, he actually goes forward to the end of the universe, basically. Or at least the end of Earth. The sun yeah. has, has expanded, it's turned red, um, and he sees what are basically these sort of crab monsters that he assumes are what people become dying on the, the shores of some ocean. And then he goes back. Um, but I believe in the book there's no mention of him returning to the future. Is there? Uh, he disappears. He right. and the machine vanish, but there's no... There's no suggestion. In the movie, it's clear he's going back to Yvette Mimieu and, uh, you know. Weena. Who wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> oh, Max. Hey, she, hey, she behave. Is, she is gorgeous, but. Uh, She's 17, Max. Uh, yes, but her At hair is decades older. <laughs> part of the time she's 17. Yeah, yeah. But uh, watching the film's like, and she's 18 now. now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah. Uh, in, in the in the book, like you say, he just we don't know the the narrator, whoever he is, is uh, speculates that uh, he may have gone back into the past or somewhere else in the future. We yeah. don't know. No, but it's I mean, all things considered, it's Hollywood. It's nineteen sixty, which quite honestly is a point where adaptation was a very loosely defined term. Uh, it is pretty faithful. Uh, that all the stuff about yeah. going to the twentieth century and the wars is not part of the original book. He basically goes right from his time to eight hundred two thousand seven hundred one. Yeah, which I yeah I take a breath there. <laughs> um, but we have some actors here that we're going to mention. Whit Bissell, which is he's been in everything. We've mentioned yep. him before. He will probably show up again. Um, Alan sure. Young, which is one of the two Alan. main co-stars. Wilbur! We, that's right. He's from Mr. Ed. <laughs> yep, he is. And he is doing a very entertaining Scottish accent in this. It's fine. It's also fine. considered. I it's kept fine. expecting, oh, Wilbur! <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Mr. Ed was inexplicably a very popular <laughs> show in the late 50s about an architect who in his backyard had a talking horse. Yeah. Uh, and I, the horse would do everything from get him into trouble to surf. I wish I was kidding, but I'm no, not. No, that's a famous <laughs> clip of Mr. Ed on a surfboard. Yeah, they used to stick peanut butter in the horse's mouth to make his mouth move and dub dialogue in. But he's not the only old sitcom star sitting around the table Mr. in the first French. scene. Mr. French is there. <laughs> Sebastian Cabot. Who also is probably, besides that role, Mr. French of a show called Family Affair is probably well known for being the narrator in the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. Right, right, right. Um, and also, uh, isn't he Bagheera in the Jungle Book? Uh... I yes, think he is in the anime. Yes. Sorry, yes. in the first animated. Now we. I hate that we have to specify yeah. in the first animated from the '60s Jungle Book. I believe he's Bagheera the Panther. Alan Young, by the way, ha, uh, some of our listeners may know him by a slightly more contemporary uh, role. He is the voice of Scrooge McDuck oh, in pretty right. much all of the Ducktale and Disney uh, TV uh, television shows where Scrooge McDuck shows up. Where I believe he continues to use that accent. <laughs> yes, he, he, he got a little better at it, I think. So one of the things I found interesting about this film, uh, and th- to be fair, this depiction of time travel, because this is from the book, in most of every other time travel tale, time travel tale, <laughs> weird, uh, yeah. too much alliteration, they concentrate on going back in time. 
And the only point that he goes back in time is when he comes back to his own present. Yeah. He's all about the future. And it's kind of interesting to me because what is it about all the other stories where going back in time is the more interesting aspect? Instead of seeing how things turn out, we want to go and fix things. Well, that's but, part of it. The idea is, I, I think the idea is people get interested. They want to go back and see how much of our the history we've heard about is true. I just thought it was interesting because, you know, if you talk time travel, everybody else, you know, Back to the Future does go into the future, but the original film, that's not where we end up. And even when we do go ahead into the future in Back to the Future 2, it's not for very long because then again, we end up in the Old West. So, right. you know, back in time. time. <laughs> so I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. yeah I see that. Um, George Powell, the film's director, actually did a string of well-remembered and honestly influential science fiction films in the 50s and 60s. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Let, me th- let me see if I can remember. Uh, I know one was When Worlds Collide. That is correct. And I'm out. What are the others? Uh, War of the Worlds. Oh, okay. You might remember that little Yes, known. of course, because that's where Clayton Forrester and uh, uh, Larry Earhart come from. I also think, I have to check on this, but I believe he was the man who at least produced, if not directed, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. Oh, okay. I thought but, it was Dr. Lou. It's L-A-O, but... Yeah, but in the movie, they all say Dr. Lou. Well, that's certainly how um, uh, Joel pronounces it. Yeah. But anyway, I've never seen it. It, it stars... Oh, I have. Tony Randall in oh, many yeah. roles that won't surprise you. <laughs> yes, Tony Randall in yellow face. It's yes. a little... It's pretty Very uncomfortable. culturally sensitive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say that of, of his handful of films, uh, War of the Worlds and this film... There's a, I mean, this the machine will show up in other things, up to and including um, uh, Big Bang Theory. Yes, I saw that episode. Yep. And I, I gotta say about the time machine, yep. it's the machine itself is gorgeous. It really is. It cool. looks so cool, and it's so beautifully made, and the controls have like ivory and gold and crystal on them. Yes, it's very Victorian. Um, it is kind of steampunk without being steampunk. Because, you know, for one thing, it's not steam-powered. Actually, it's one of the things they never talk about. There's the weirdnesses I noticed in the trivia. I didn't put it in. But um, George, this great inventor, doesn't have electricity in his home. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It's 1899. He should have started uh, converting over to electricity. But he's got oil, oil lamps and gas and stuff. Yeah, but also, we have no idea what powers the time machine itself it is never oh. even referenced um, and like so many cinematic time machines it's astonishingly precise yes you can get i mean literally to the day i i still don't know and never it was the same thing with the delorean and back to the future how can it get down to the day i mean hell i think the delorean even get down to the hour hey if you can travel in time I, I, that's yeah, the first thing you yeah. got to trip over. If I can get over that, I can get over <laughs> the exactness. Because he doesn't have hours in there, so he actually comes back later than he thought. But, you know, There's he's got also, clocks everywhere. <laughs> in the movie, which and and at least part one of the things in the book, there's some surprisingly advanced thinking. Yeah. I mean, the idea of talking <laughs> about time as the fourth dimension. Yep. That nobody, I think uh, some German scientist had come up with that in 1886. So it was like five minutes before the book was written, and Wells knew about it, and it wasn't really accepted until not into the 20th century, I don't think. Uh, you but, feel free to correct me, any of you math people. Yeah. But that's a- really, I mean, that's where you get one of those examples of H.G. Uh, Wells or Jules Verne being kind of prescient about this. Well, there's a statement in the film, and to be fair, I don't know if this actually comes from the book, and it was one of my little talking points, but uh, George at one point states... Time changes space. Yeah. Now, is that... Do you think that's true? Uh, the idea that time and space are linked, that's... I think that is a pretty predominant theory. And the idea that... Uh, it, it's the same idea that as you approach the speed of life, time changes. Right. Yeah. No, that... And that, I'm pretty sure, that was not around in the 19th century. But the problem, that, and, and I, this also goes from one of my other points, is I actually really like Sebastian Cabot's character. He is a big blustery, I don't believe anything, I'm stuck in my times, actually a pretty good representation of a Victorian. Yeah. But he's also um, 
a character that's a necessary foil to George's exuberance. He's like a tempering view on science because sometimes science is like, look what I can do, spew, spew, yep, disgusting. We're all about oh my coulda, god, coulda, not shoulda. <laughs> yeah, and he's sitting there going, whoa, 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 calm down. What, what do you? No, you can't do this. No, and it's like, well, what about this? Well. Okay, I'll give give you that, but certainly not this. Well, what about this? But he's also the one who talks about the practical applications. He says, if you've actually done this, you got to tell the the War Department. You know, we're in the middle of a war. I'm okay. Technically, the Boer War is not well, it's not exactly World War One. No, but, but it was a major conflict for the British Empire. And God, imagine weaponizing time travel. But but the problem that uh, the the somewhat shallow thinking character i don't know his name i can't remember his name but sebastian cabot's character is he sees a little model which i so wanted when i was a kid i want this toy uh, i could this see is, that i don't know i'm is, amazed they didn't sell that and there's this little miniature of the time machine that we will see later in full size and they stick a cigar in it to represent a time traveler move the little lever and it disappears that's what really freaked me out i'm like wait a minute you could make one of those that size yeah well, ha! Does that uh, yeah. mean there's no size limitation? You could make one the size of a building. It's I, magic, honestly. Yeah, at this point. it, it is. It's pretty much. They don't. And to be fair, and I give them credit, they don't explain. They don't even try to explain how it works. No, it just does. And this is actually pretty common for the very little science fiction that existed in the late 19th century. It's just like it just happens. We're really more interested in in what the effects of having this but, thing would be. So Little. what if there was I almost could... none? I mean, yeah, there well, was him, Jules Verne. I guess you could argue Mary Shelley to a degree. Yeah. Well, and I, know, I'm so, out. <laughs> and I well, I actually looked into the whole time travel thing. I didn't because uh, there's two major time travel stories that I know of of the late 19th century. One of them is this because this was published in uh, 1895, and the other, of course, is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. But oh, in that 20, case, yeah. And that was 1886. Uh, in that case, there was really nothing about technology. The guy gets hit on the head, and it's like, I'm back in time. Yeah, that's, it, that's less science. I mean, that was much more of an allegory and right. just, a, just a story hook than anything scientific. But he's really more interested in that point. Things were, were in the Industrial Revolution, so technology is starting to become a thing. And he was really much more interested in... And there actually is some social commentary in the book and the movie, but he's more interested in that and the effects that this might have. Like, where are we going? Like, what we know now, what is that going to, where is that going to take us? And in the case of this, not to a very happy place, because, uh, yeah. yeah, but um, I do I do appreciate there being one voice in the group going, uh, no, you can't do that. That makes no sense. I, wh wh if it's still in the same place, why can't I touch it? And it's trying, I think he represents like sort of old thinking and George's new thinking going, you have to learn to see the universe in a different way. Yeah, he's it's also, like, he's the skeptic. Whereas right. Philby is also a voice of reason, but his is more, more he's the voice of morality. Right. He's talking about, even if the, even if you, excuse me, even if you've done this, is <laughs> George, <laughs> you shouldn't do it. You should, dis you should destroy yon machine. Oh, wura wura. Mr. McMiser. Sorry, yeah. I just couldn't get over his Scottish accent. But Are you going to start gargling Gershwin at some I point? I am. <laughs> gorgeously. <laughs> no, he's, he's, the one who, he's the one who actually brings up, and honestly, it's one of the first things I think about with time travel. Okay, you can do this, but you shouldn't. You're messing with an unbelievably fundamental part of the universe, and you don't know what you're doing. Well, and this brings me to another one of my points. Um, so do you think that this movie this story is trying to put forth the idea that faith, I'm sorry, not faith, fate, that fate is a real thing or are they trying to debunk it? Because Sebastian Cabot is very much of the, the idea that no, it's fate. Everything's written. It's all just going to play out exactly as it's already been decided because he's going forward in time as opposed to back where you could see the effect of you messing about, you know, the butterfly effect or, you know, stepping on your, your, the embryo that becomes your grand, whatever. Um, be, that, that's a weird, weird. Yeah, <laughs> Gee, I don't, yeah. I don't know where you got that, that one. But yeah. I don't know. I don't skip script everything. Some of this just comes out as it comes out. Um, 
Do you think that this movie is a proponent or opponent of fate? The idea that everything's already been written. I don't think fate comes into it. Fate implies once you have fate, you have the idea of if the, if the future is written, somebody wrote it. That makes it a more religious or spiritual aspect. And I notice they do their very best to avoid spirituality in yeah. this. They don't mention God at all. They don't mention faith. I, I don't think it has anything to do with fate. I don't. Th- I think the to me the question was: Is this book pro or anti technology? Because there, we're, what we're seeing is not to mention. The, the view of the future is so bleak. Basically, the, in this book, or in this movie, the world ends in 1966. Right. Everything's destroyed, and it takes almost 800,000 years for anything to come back. And what comes back is horrible. Yes. The Eloy, the, the system of the Eloy and the Morlock, and they explain it a little bit more in the book, but it's still very clearly there in the movie. I give them real credit for that. Yeah. That the ones above ground were so well cared for, they became cattle. They have no, they have no anima. They have no, uh, they don't do anything. No, which makes me wonder why they're all so slender and fit. But well, they're only given so much food. But I have seen the future, and it is blonde. Cause yeah, again, <laughs> yeah. what is this with it's? Admittedly, when he shows up, and he's hanging around the Morlocks. I keep going, okay, where's Vol? <laughs> Where's Vol? I'm waiting well, for Vol to show up. Or I'm waiting for those uh, that, that Star Trek Next Generation episode with the planet of the blonde surfers who yeah. murder you for breaking any law. Yeah, like stepping on the grass. Yes. Um, and also, and in the book, I got to say, they do a better job of this. Why is it 800,000 years and the Eloy all speak English? Yeah, in the book, I think they talk about the stone language, something they, they have, preserve. They don't speak English. He has to. He basically has to... It learned bits and pieces of their language. He oh, teaches okay. a little bit of theirs. They're just sort of, uh, there's a whole lot of grunting and pointing, I think. <laughs> and gosh, I do miss my grunting. because. Yep, yep. Yeah. Oh, I, I, oh. One thing I will say about the Morlocks, um, don't see any girls. Mm. <laughs> just saying. Uh, that's an interesting society. Yeah, the Morlocks, I, d- I don't get. I mean... First off, they're they're portrayed as he calls them like what white lemurs. They're he's, they're portrayed as these mindless beast men. Yet we know they can not only cultivate and gather food to put out for the Eloy, they can make clothing, and they can make pottery and very nice plates that are apparently very hard to break. Well, either that or they're still around. I got sort of the the impression that anything that looked modern was stuff that was still around and they couldn't take care of like, you know, the roof obviously has fallen in that the big Eloy dome uh, where I guess they play all their Eloy basketball or whatever, <laughs> but uh, Tonight in the Eloy dome. it's like, we can't fix that, but Hey, we can wash dishes. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, the amount of effort that they have to put into um, caring for their meat <laughs> yeah. is fairly minimal. And the machines we see in the, the, Morlock caves are not in the best repair. So my feeling is that they're basically able to keep whatever's still going, going, and that's about it. The 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 book gives a slightly better explanation, which kind of makes sense. The idea is the Morlocks built those things you know, eons ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, and they've degenerated into these animalistic ones, but they still retain a sort of racial memory of they they know how to work fix the machines they know how to do things they don't know how but it's just become a routine it's become almost instinct right. and they do mention this in the movie and there is suggestion of this in the movie uh there is a, also a suggestion that the eloi don't remember any of this at all it's like oh yeah there's these rings if you spin them spin them they talk but we don't understand what they say so we never go there um and also it, I, I looked a little bit into the book apparently the book was written with some of of uh, Wells's experiences in life, none of which have to do with time travel. Gonna say, but apparently he comes from a background where his family literally lived in a basement. His his folks were working class, and that uh, there was a lot of the servitude in England at the time. The servants' quarters were all all often under stairs or literally below ground. So there there's this whole generation or generations of people that didn't see daylight unless they were coming up to help serve their their masters, oh, as it were. That's why they used to refer to it as below stairs. Yeah. Right. So Servants. Uh, that's where the sort of the darker aspect, although interestingly, he switches the 
in a way, the position, because the Morlocks are the masters, but they're the ones grunting and living in, I guess, you know, living in squalor, except, you know, the Eloi all have all these this food and stuff provided for them, but they're mindless and, st- and stupid. Um, I think there is an attempt at social commentary there. I think it's it's less apparent in the movie because it's an American film and we don't really have that same... Well, I'm sorry. We didn't have that same sort of uh, class distinction in our past. Well, we kind of have it now. Um, but yeah, and we we also didn't have one of the things they warned that the British Empire used to complain about. A lot of the intellectuals did in the 19th century was the complacency of the empire because you know that's a thousand year old uh, uh, country and they've been around for a long time and they've gotten very stable and. They, they were they warn about it was unfortunately that was one of the sort of ideas for colonial expansion was as long till when as long as the empire keeps growing and we keep conquering all these inferior brown people we uh, will will do well but it's yeah. when that stops and whereas you know America is just like well every people want to come here we don't have to go colonize because we're America yeah, and we've already done that yeah so. we're also a much younger country but uh, yeah I, yes. I also have to say in the book the Eloy never change. We, no. we know that in in the movie, you know, uh, they're inspired by his English whiteness. And, <laughs> Actually, and, it turns out Rod Taylor's Australian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, his British whiteness. Enough. Yeah. And uh, as we see, one of the, the big deal is one of the Eloy remember, figures out how to make a fist. Yeah. <laughs> Which, quite honestly, for them, is actually pretty impressive. Yes, but then all of them are like, ah, we can beat up the Morlocks. Ah. Yeah. Which, I'm sorry, it was much more believable in the book. The movie, that's just, like, really, these guys, you, you suddenly have overcome countless generations of of breeding and mindset in five minutes. Yeah. You know, and it, you, you can give them some leeway because it's a short film. It's, like, just short of, I think it's 89 minutes, so it's not even an no, hour no, and a half. I think it's 104. It was, like, an hour and 40 minutes, I think. The TV version is 89. I saw it on IMDb. <laughs> TV version. Yeah, the, the version they cut down for t- for TV broadcast. Because, you know, made for TV, love you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> TV versions of things. Yep. Um, but they still they have a limited time, and they're actually yeah, they added stuff. Because they were. I, I think they were trying to make a little bit of social commentary about the fascination man seems to have, or humans, excuse me, have with... Um, war making because the three times he stops in the 20th century it's like wow all this war this is terrible it's like oh you have no idea it gets worse from there yeah it's <laughs> like, also we don't have world war three maybe but uh yeah it's also it's, when you think about it the movie came out in 1960 and according to the movie the world ended six years later well remember this like, is during yikes! the whole red scare and all all of the uh oh yeah the fear of nuclear destruction yeah. Oh yeah. No, so. that that's. I, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that's really dark. It is. You know, for a film that is as brightly lit as it is, yeah. it is fairly dark. And again, as Max pointed out, the future is not very rosy. No. Uh, and apparently, the only way we're going to survive as a species is if somebody from Victorian England comes to help us. Yeah. Otherwise, um, apparently, we fragment into two either can- basically chuds. Yeah. And and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which, for those who don't know, and I hope that's all of you, is cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Yes, from the was a movie, real movie of the same name, Chud. Yes, Chud. <laughs> Which I think there were like four of those movies. But uh, I thought it was just yeah. sort of a mix of the, the terms chum and bud. So you're my Chud. <laughs> <laughs> Depends oh how you chew it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah chum, so it's either. Get it in a store near you. <laughs> Yeah, so it's either, you know, uh, the, the human race fragments into chuds and, I don't know, blonde stoners. It's, it's kind of elves and dwarves, really, is what it is. <laughs> oh, no, that that's a real disservice to both elves and dwarves in virtually eh. every mythology. Eh. <laughs> hey, they're both, you know. Dwarves do so. not eat elves. They give us gas. Well, they must be good for something, rotten, pointy-eared bastard. Uh <laughs> Yeah, it is a pretty dark take, and it is. I, I, I definitely think that this film. I mean, it's pretty obviously that this film was influenced by the the atomic scare of the ever the 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 duck and cover, if you will, um, and it's definitely meant to be a statement against that. Um, unfortunately, in some of the cases, the statement is is watered down a little bit by the. Um, Academy Award-winning special effects, which really are a product of their time. 
Hey, for um, the time, they were pretty impressive. Uh, well, yeah, except here's one of the things. At one point when the, the bomb goes off, and quite honestly, George should be irradiated because yeah, well, <laughs> he's and, outside. And suddenly the streets are filled with chili. Well, no, I looked at that and it's like, wow, that lava looks a lot like oatmeal. Yeah, oh. guess what it was? Oh, oatmeal. it was oatmeal? I thought it was <laughs> yes. chili. Okay, no. I, I, it looked oh. edible is all I know. Oh, a street full of chili. That's hey, great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. What did so, you think about the music? I thought it was very Albert Glasser-esque. That's, I have that written exactly there. It's very Albert Glasser-esque. The man who holds you down and pummels you with music. Yes, it, the music Al- is very intrusive at times. They have a lot of musical... Dun, dun, dun! A flower. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it is a bit heavy-handed. Um, I would say it's not... I like the little theme. Like the, the, the Time Machine movie theme is actually kind of nice. It's very lilting and stuff but it really does there are points where it just reaches up and smacks you behind the head yeah the incidental Um, music is really um over the top yeah (laughs) yeah there's also some a few things in there i mean you can't try to pick apart the science because there isn't any but things like when he's trying to talk to the eloy and figure things out he's like he asks them you know what their government is and they say we have no government i'm like but you know what government is? You know what laws are? How? Well, pretty much whenever he asks them anything, they really should just respond with, <laughs> Yeah! How do they not... I mean, never mind. I still don't buy that they would speak English. I get why they did it. It's easier. Yeah. But they wouldn't know... They wouldn't understand any of the concepts he brings up. That's the whole no. point that he's making. I mean, I'm surprised they understand plates. <laughs> my my two other questions were... Why do the Morlocks use whips? Because they, they, where there's a whip, there's a way. Uh, but they don't <laughs> sing. If you're gonna well, if you're gonna do that, you have to sing the song. But they are green. <laughs> but the Eloy are completely docile. They don't need whips. They basically just go shove and oak. Okay. Yeah. Well, it seems that they mostly they they have this weird hypnotic sound, which, as it turns out, is eerily reminiscent of the yeah. uh, an air raid siren. Song. That was actually a, kid, a nice touch. Yeah. That sound as a kid, like it would only show up in movies. I never heard it out loud, but when I heard it, it was like that frightened the crap out of me because it's like I know what that means. That means we're all gonna die. I saw it in the time machine. I um, heard that, variants of that when I lived in Minnesota. That's what the tornado alarm sounded like. We have them here in Michigan too. Like it's 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 supposed to be a weather alert too, but it's like that sound still has a very slight chilling effect on me, and it's like yeah, ah, um, so yeah, I actually like the Morlocks for the the makeup is don't look too hard at it, but for yeah. the time they have eyes that light up. I have no idea how it must have been flashlight batteries, but how they shove them in the masks, I'll never know. I don't know, and they do. They look very creepy and very chilling. And those guys are like, they run around like apes. They have these big white hairy arms. They leap around and attack. And they're, they're, they're obviously stuntmen um, doing great jobs. Although, as I pointed out, there's not a woman among them. Not that uh, we I can think tell. We, well, I, that's because I think we don't, they wanted to look, have them look as primitive as possible. And we can't, of course, have green breasts flying around because that would just offend people. I, um, I, I was, remember thinking at one point, like, well, Rod Taylor or, you know, the George, George Wells, he certainly can handle a lot of them because he's like beating the crap out of 20 of them. But then I thought, you know, they would have no reason to know how to fight. Right. Everything, they don't, everybody does what they say. So Yeah, the Eloy don't fight back unless these guys, and they don't seem to be that many of them, so they wouldn't have a lot of reason to fight each other. That yeah. was another question. Is that the only colony on Earth? That was it? That, that one bunch of Eloy, that one bunch of Morlocks? Or were there other? could there be others elsewhere on the planet? Well, we don't know. I mean, again, no time. You could make this into an entire series and explore that, and it might actually be really cool to do so. You know, and occasionally you do have to sit there and go, "Well, all right, I have to give him this because of time." And that's mm-hmm. that's one. It's not mentioned in the book either. No. He goes wandering around England, you know, the the London of that time, eight hundred and two thousand seven hundred one, and you know, he doesn't see another colony or any suggestion. I think he does find another building. Yeah far away I think, from... I think that's right, but yeah, it's collapsed. But otherwise, no we there. don't know. And quite yeah. honestly, it's likely that if there was any kind of communication over long distances, it's long since gone. I, um, I also know that... I know they crumble when he touches them, but the idea that those books, which the implication is they're from <laughs> our time, would have lasted almost a million years? No. Yeah. They well, would have been dust so long before that. It's actually very, it has nothing to do with the, the 
the attitude or the intention of the makers of the film, but it's actually a really interesting look at what technology has actually done in the 20th century, because in the 50s, 60s, when you were looking forward to the future, we were hoping for flying cars. Like, that was it. Like, and, oh, we might have really tall buildings. Uh, Things like the internet? No. (laughs) Just not even a... Like, there's almost no idea of that there's apparently there is uh you will find in very rare science fiction stories that idea but the stuff that we've got now quite honestly is well beyond what anybody was thinking well, of like to it my, to a my phone and oh. I, I my, if i'm holding it up you can't see it people make fun of me because i have a four-year-old i a four-year-old iphone oh my god is four. it made out of stone <laughs> it is and, it, it's, and it's out of date we don't make this anymore does right? it have a crank on the side that you have to turn and no, then you talk into it you, t- you say hello sarah get me mount pilot <laughs> <laughs> i actually saw somebody has made a smartphone recently oh that yeah for no reason i can understand has a dial on rotary dial an yeah. actual rotary dial anyway I have a four-year-old iPhone, which is considered out-of-date, uh, old technology. It works fine. I don't need to update it. But I can do the the, the most amazing things with this piece of technology. Yeah, basically, I could make this movie with my phone. That thing in your pocket is probably more powerful than the Colossus the Forbidden Project. Yeah. So, However... I got to disagree with you. There are, well, we may not have like an internet or such in science fiction. There are a number of movies where people talk about connecting to the central brain or using terminals to get information from a central repository, which is the prototype of the internet. Right, but it's not common. It's like that's not what people were expecting. Yeah, everybody walks around with it. (laughs) And of course, ray guns, which thankfully we're getting now. Yay. Um but I actually miss the days where we called computers electronic brains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's something cool about that, although now it's actually kind of scary. Yeah, because um, yeah, now it actually could be actually be an electronic brain. Well, for example, this is this is sort of vaguely connected, but I saw an article this week. There's a game out there. I think it's Red Dead Redemption. And inexplicably, in the middle of a game, there is a player character talking to an NPC. And out of the background, suddenly this NPC lurches, gets behind the NPC the player's talking to, stabs it in the neck, kills it, and then just walks away. And nobody playing the game has any idea why this NPC did this. Um, and, of course, everyone's going, uh, that looks a lot like Future World uh, or West World. And it's like, uh, that's a future I don't need. <laughs> so, anyway. Um there was a, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, Max, uh, yeah. one of which is a pretty obvious one. What three books would you take? Uh, and actually- do you have any idea what three books Pal was trying to guess that we were guess he would take? Given the time and the attitude, I would bet you dollars to donuts, as they used to say, that one yeah. of them was the Bible. Yeah, probably. Otherwise, probably. Probably. <laughs> God, I don't know. A uh, guide to practical engineering. Uh, uh, something about water purification. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would want engineering manuals. I'd want books that, that to take with me to the, to a to a non technological place that would help me build things. Maybe a Boy Scout handbook. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be good. Something out in wilderness survival. Yeah. And beyond that, I don't know the Norton Anthology of Poetry. Try to teach these people something a little more, you know, other than that's a tree. I think it's actually a really cool way to end the movie because they literally go, what did he take with him? Because the only people left are David Philby, his best friend, and his housekeeper, George's housekeeper. And they're looking around and she's like, I don't see anything out of place. And she would know. And yeah. then she looks over the bookcase and realizes that there's three slots in the bookcase. And she says, except three books. And they're like, what three books did you take? And he's like, I guess we'll never know. But it's actually kind of cool because it ends the film on a on a talking point, a thinking point, without letting you go, well, what happens? Well, what happens? You know, there's not yeah, having it's that not kind frustrating. of cheap ending. And it's, I, I was really, I didn't remember that. I saw, I don't know if I've ever, I've seen part of this movie. I've never seen the whole thing before. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, it's going to be, I don't know, like the Bible, uh, complete Shakespeare and something else. It's like, oh, they're not going to tell us. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, now you fill it. What would you take? I mean, you'd think you'd want to take something about, like you said, survival or building or something that would allow you to start and continue, right? Like, I need, like, could I build a fire? Sure. Could I build a house? Uh, (laughs) Oh, 
I, uh, I could build a lean-to, I'm pretty sure. And or, Well, no, I could build a house. It wouldn't stay up, but I could build yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, anything to do with metals, forget yeah. it. Uh, if you get them real hot, they get real hot and melt. Uh, okay. Of course, I, you also have to wonder, why did he only take three? That's a big machine. He could have fit a small library. And also, there's a certain under thing that undercuts the tension. There's nothing stopping him from coming back multiple times. Well, so let me get to something I was going to get to a little later. This I did not know. When I was doing research on this, it turns out that in 1993, they filmed a little epilogue. For this movie? For this movie, starring Rod Taylor and Alan Young and Whit Bissell! (laughs) And it was written, This it's not long, it's, it's, it's actually part of a documentary about the making of the film. It's probably about 10, 15 minutes long, if that. And it was written by the screenwriter of this film. Because apparently, this film is a very much loved film in science fiction circles, but also by Rod Taylor and Alan Young, the original stars. And I was like, what, really? And it, I actually had to rent this from uh, Amazon because it was not available on any uh, nowhere else that I saw. It wasn't on YouTube and it wasn't in iTunes. So in this, because the actors, of course, have aged. They're now 33 years older than they were. They're, yeah. they're older men. Uh, in this, David Philby is closing up the time traveler's house. He's closing up George's house for what we assume is the last time. This is, I guess, right like when they, before they were boarding it up. Um, and it's also the night before David Philby uh, acts on the orders he've been, he's been given to go fight in France in World War II. Well, as we found out in the original film, David Philby dies in, right. in France. So George, doing his friend will die there, because he heard it from Jamie Philby when he met Jamie Philby in 1940, um, tries to convince David to come with him back into the time machine, back to the future. Uh-huh. Um, David, though, is still representing his, he's sort of the representation of fear of the new, fear of the unknown. And he's basically like, I, I can't get lo- yes. get over this. I can't get over tradition. I don't want to go. And George, of course, is very sad because he's like, you're my best friend and I can save you. And you, and he, I, he's like, I don't want to tell you why, but you really kind of need to come with me right now. And David's like, I can't. I have to go to, to France. And George, because he's not that kind of guy, lets him go and said, and as David leaves, he's like, well, we're actually going to meet one more time. And of course, the implication of that is, you know, after they die, some sort of afterlife. But what he says is. I know where your plane is going to take off, and I'll just make sure I'm there. Um, and it's it doesn't address any of the the ideas that he can come and go as he pleases, but it's actually a really nice little scene that feels like it was made because it is that was made by all the original makers. Um, it's a nice, have, it's a nice thought, but as you say, it doesn't address the 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 fact that he can come and go whenever he wants. I mean, he has to be careful if he where he moves the the, the machine. No. And also, I'm sorry, that doesn't count. Well, I, no, I, doesn't. I don't like this idea. Of, you know, 30 years later, they they decide, oh, there, there's this epilogue. No, I'm sorry, the movie has to stand by itself. You can't oh, it do- does. I totally think it does. I just thought it was nice. It's yeah. nice. It's nice. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it was, the really cool thing is, is that Alan Young falls right into the character David Philby. He feels exactly like he did in the movie, and so does Rod Taylor. It I was, did, it, yeah. I you can tell that they both really enjoyed doing this, yeah. and it was I, that. I, again, I'm not saying that this has any bearing. I just thought it was nice yeah. and surprising because I love this film. I've seen this film many times, and I didn't know this even occurred. So, I, I also got to say, I don't think David Philby is the embodiment of fear. He's of the, the new? No, well, no, because what his objection is, he just thinks it, not, it that time travel is wrong, not because it's new. He just thinks it violates the natural order. I think he's, you might argue he's a creature of tradition, but he's also a creature, he, he's like supposed to be the hard-headed Scotsman. He's, he believes in <laughs> what the, he can, uh, the, uh, what's the word? Not cheap. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the simulated thrifty. Scotsman. Thrifty, thrifty. <laughs> it's been in the family for generations. I know uh, it smells. <laughs> I, I think he's more, you know, more the creature of faith he says look the idea that we're supposed to be now we're supposed to move through time at one second per second and what george is doing is violates the natural order which is, is an interesting thing and also brings up 
I hate time travel stories. Oh, dear gods. They are such a pain in the neck. They really are. They don't make any sense. You can pick them apart, and nobody has ever solved the grandfather paradox or any of that. Nope. This film, thankfully, does pretty much avoid all of that by not going into the past. Yeah, that's actually a nice touch. But then, of course, that argues... Okay, so if... One of the things about time travel, and as you say, most of the time people go into the past, it's because there's that simple question, how do you, can you go to something that hasn't happened? The right. past has happened. Right. The future hasn't. And I, I still, somebody described, I think it was, on, oddly enough, that a TV show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., talking about time as picture, uh, we see time as pages in a book. You know, right. Each page turns, and we see the next page. Someone, you know, you talk about someone with a different level of consciousness can see the whole book at once. So, in effect, everything's happening at the same time. And I think that's an actual theory. I don't, I can't get my head around it. But travel into the future doesn't make sense. Well, so before we get to that, do you remember what was the film? Was it? It wasn't Ascension. What was the the Alien film with that dealt with that? Um, oh, uh, with the one with Amy uh, Adams Jeremy, uh, and Jeremy Renner. Yeah, yeah. What I can't remember. Uh, it. Was it Ascension? I did. It, it was one of those one words, and it. Be, yeah, yeah. I can't. remember. But the idea remember. that they had to get through was this, and I thought this was actually really interesting. Was the main character is a linguist? Yeah, and they're trying to communicate with these aliens who shut, oh, suddenly arrival. show up. Arrival, arrival, arrival. Which I actually do recommend. I thought it was a really interesting film. Um. And one of the things that they have, they that she realizes, she's the only one who actually is able to, to really understand this, is that the problem they're having with their language is that exactly what you just said. These are a being that see time as a whole all all at once. Yeah, they don't understand the concepts of past, present, or future because it's no. all the same thing. And eventually, what happens is that as she learns the language her understanding of time changes as well because that's part of learning the language. Um, and I really liked the idea because it's it was a science fiction film that was not about blowing things up. It was about understanding. And whether or not the theory makes any sense, the whole idea was if you stop and think about things and if you really try to understand something, you might not only understand it, but it also might change your perspective or in this case, literally change your understanding of something fundamental as time. Um, so in your point going to the future makes as much sense as going to the past in that this future well well yeah exactly but the future supposedly is the product of a connected series of events once he's gone into the future if, if we're going to allow that my argument is that technically he couldn't go back to the same past because those events didn't lead to where he went right because if he went and screwed things up, then if he goes backwards, then he... Anyway, uh, as Max he, pointed out, time travel is a pain in the neck. Yeah. Don't do it. That's, <laughs> it that's seems the other like thing. it's can, fun. Can he, can he change the future? Could he have, say, gone to 1965 and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to sabotage... I'm going to use my magic time machine to sabotage the nuclear weapons. And, well, or Max, is it... What you're, what you're saying is, is he went into 1965 and said have a war <laughs> yeah yes he basically went to yoko ono on them <laughs> <laughs> yeah he could have I, it it raises so many problems and i'm sorry so often it's just a gimmick and they don't they don't exa- no one examines the implications of it that was right. again a nice thing about arrival they really not just the implications but the outcome what it does because yeah. and, and how we're really not wired to understand it no but so, also time the, you people never think one step further with time travel. They, yeah. they think they've got their whole, like, oh, I can explain the timelines, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're missing the point. If one person came up with a time machine, even if that person is decades ahead of anybody else, at some point somebody's going to invent a time machine, and then another person, and then another person. These things are going to proliferate future history. So... None of this makes any sense if you can go back and forth in time because people would be screwing it up all the time. Yeah, so you have to have one of two ideas. I remember having this argument. I think with uh, I think Mike 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 Dane, the uh, my other college roommate, who was a huge science fiction fan, had read way more than I had. Yeah, he said there's there's one of two two ways you can do time travel. Either nothing you do changes anything, right, 
or what you do can change things and everybody can do it, which means history doesn't mean anything anymore and all you have is just this vast fragmenting future of uh, infinite timelines where nothing means anything. Right. Because you can just go back and change everything. I actually like the idea of time travel as an observer only. Like, you can see stuff, but you can't do anything. All you can do is see. Um, that being said, generally, when it comes to any given science fiction show, I don't care what science fiction show it is, don't do time travel. Yeah. It's not going... You can't... If you think more than 10 seconds about it, it makes no sense. I enjoy Back to the Future. I'm going to give it a pass because it's fun and they don't... Whatever. It's fine. But really, you can't look at it. It doesn't work. Um, and I actually, there's an article today that popped up that said, this scientist thinks he knows the actual secret behind time travel. I'm not going to read the article because it doesn't work. Because mm. if there was time travel, or if there's going to be time travel, it's already happened. And in fact, it's happening now. And now. Oh, and now. And now. So, no. Right, you are, Dave. But we are getting to that point where we much decide whether the 1960 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine holds up or not? Or was it just a childhood fancy? Did it in fact happen? Or has it been redone? Or, or did it never exist? The Roundup. What is up with Zinc? And Matt, I'm going <laughs> to ask you. So you said yeah. now, you, you'd seen this as a kid at some point, you I, think? No, I think I liked to his channel flipping around Channel 56 and I'd watch a little <laughs> bit of it here because that's yeah. where it was. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think I had ever watched it from beginning to end. Okay, and so this is your first full beginning to end? Yep. What did you think? Seeing seeing it in historical context, and remembering this is a film of the 1960, I think it's pretty good. I like it. I think it's... it. First of all, it looks wonderful. I like mm-hmm. the way the time machine lo- looks. The special effects for their time are pretty good. The costuming is good. I like the little thing with the mannequin, that that's how he's gauging time, that he sees a mannequin across the street. And uh, he watches the the, fee- the women's fashions change over decades. Yep. I like that they are consistent with the fact that it, the time machine moves only in time and not in space. And even if he so, if he drags it twenty feet, it makes a big difference. Yeah, uh, I think the performances are decent. I, I think oddly enough, once they get with the Eloy, I start it starts to get really kind of like, eh. yeah. But well, I, li- I liked commentary. it. I I liked it. I think I think it works. Cool. Does it hold up for you? I love this movie. Uh. I've loved this movie since I was a kid. <laughs> Strangely, of the the big science fiction films, um, this was one of the ones that rarely showed up. Like, I would see War of the I've seen War of the Worlds many, many times. I like War of the Worlds, too. It's another George Powell film. It's another adaptation of H.G. Uh, Wells. Um, it works pretty well, although it is a much looser adaptation. Uh, I actually, I think only the BBC has done an adaptation of War of the Worlds that actually takes place in England. Everyone, uh, otherwise, it's always somewhere else because uh, it's usually the Americans doing it. Yeah. Um, I, as soon as this was something you could own, I owned it. Um, I've every once in a while I'll rewatch it. This is one of those films that I will always have a warm place for. Um, it it has a sense of wonder about it, which I really like. I don't know that I think it holds up. Um, this, the special effects are really kind of obvious and kind of not. There's also some stock footage that's just horrible because it's very grainy and it's got lots of little nicks and tears in it and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, they had a budget. I think for what he had for a budget for the time period, he did a great job. And quite honestly... He sticks fairly closely to the book, unlike the 2002 edition, which, yeah, it's it's all over the place. There's a love story thrown in that's not part of the story. Yeah, there's a sort of um, butterfly effect where he keeps going back in time to try to stop an event from happening and he can't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're willing to give it a try, it's not long, like Max says. It's 140. It's an hour and 40 minutes, so it's it's standard length for movies of of the time. Um, it does get a little slow in the Eloy section, but I think it's a, it's meant to base, make make us slow down and stop future tripping, which of course is really past tripping because you know 66, and take a look at what you know where humanity could go. Yes, the fact that they still look like we do, they're blonde and they speak English. Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, I still, this is, this is one of the films that I would watch over and over as a kid and I still watch. So I give it a thumbs up, but I would understand if people were like, this is a little old fashioned. I don't think I can get into it.
It's a it's a good classic science fiction movie. Uh, yeah, it is. It is one of the biggies from the fifties and sixties. Um, but other biggies from fifties and sixties, although I think it's actually from nineteen seventy. What are yep. we watching next week, Max? Ne- next week we are going to watch the anime. Well, mostly animated, partly live, very little live action movie. Cats. <laughs> no, not, no, oh. I would not do that again. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, directed by none other than Chuck Jones. We're going to see the Phantom Tollbooth. Ooh, which Phantom. I the book I I just friggin' loved the book as a kid, and I remember I what I'm a little concerned about is I remember being kind of disappointed by the movie. Um, well, so I, and I want I really want to see it again because I want to know was I being too hard on it? Was it just because it wasn't exactly like the book? Because uh, this is not exactly a classic movie in that I don't know if anyone watches it anymore, and it's actually kind of hard to find. Yeah, um, I never read the book. I remember owning it, but I don't think I read the book. But I remember seeing this when it came out, which is the last time that I saw it. So, mm. fifty years of memory, eh? Uh, yep, yeah, yep, pretty we'll, much. We'll see. Um, so, but you know, we'll find out. Uh, maybe it's very well rated. Maybe it's got good. See, I, I, I'm going in with an open mind. I'm expecting, you know, Phantom Tollbooth. So that says to me, without your mask, Mr. Jenkins! <laughs> Don't be silly. I'm thinking Phantom Tollbooth, and there's going to be a lot of pod racing, and Jar Jar Binks <gasps> is going to show up. Tollbooth cookies. <laughs> cookies. So next week, tune Delicious in for cookies. Phantom Tollbooth cookies. Yeah. <laughs> See you then. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Hang on, I, I can't turn it off, wait.